podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I will review our win over Torino on Saturday. In part two, I'll review our latest Primavera match, which was also on Saturday. And in part three, I will review our latest Femenile match, which was on Sunday. So let's begin with the Torino match, which finished 1-0 in favor of Napoli on a second half goal from Fabian Ruiz. That was Fabian's first goal inside the area all season. In fact, it was his first goal from inside the area since the 2018-19 campaign. In many respects, this match was exactly what I was expecting. Ivan Juric's teams are known for their defensive solidity, so a close match and a low-scoring match were to be expected. Perhaps we should have scored a second, but Lorenzo Insigne's penalty kick was stopped by Etri Berisha, so Insigne missed an opportunity to move past Matic Hamsik as the second most prolific scorer in the history of the club. At times, the match felt like a friendly, which was also something we expected given that neither of these teams had much left to play for heading into this round. Match official Alessandro Prontera must have felt like it was a friendly as well because he blew for halftime about 5 seconds before the end of the 45th minute. But in the end, we got the victory away from home, which of course has been something we've been better at this season than at home. That's now two wins in a row. We'll cover all of that in this match review and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's review the starting lineups. Ivan Juric lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Berisha in goal. Bremer was fit to start, so he played at left center back with Ricardo Rodriguez in the middle and Armando Izzo at center right. Samuel Ricci and Rolando Mandragora played in the center of the midfield, so Juric started both of his Napolitano players in Izzo and Mandragora, even though neither of them are regular starters. After the match, Juric said that he used players who are better on the ball, but that might have been a mistake. Mergim Voivoda played at left wing back and Wilfried Sango played at right wing back. Dennis Pryat and Josep Brekolo played as the two trequartisti. And finally, Il Gallo and Andrea Bellotti returned to the starting 11 to play at striker. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made no changes to the squad that he fielded against Sassuolo, which wasn't shocking either. He lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Davido Spina in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani played at centre-back. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Andre Frank Zamboangisa and Fabian Rui started in the double pivot, but we did see Stanislav Lobotka get a short appearance off of the bench, which was great to see. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, Chucky Lozano started on the right wing, Dries Mertens played in the 10, and Victor Osimhen started at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. My first key to the match was that I wanted to see a lot of movement off the ball because we knew that Torino manmark all over the park. I'm going to say that we achieved this goal. I saw a few different ways that Spalletti tried to beat the manmarking. Both Mertens and Osimhen dropped deep fairly regularly. That had two possible outcomes, both of which served us quite well. One possibility was that they pulled the center back with them, 
which created more space in behind. The other possibility is that the center back doesn't follow, in which case we have a numerical advantage in the midfield. In either case, I thought Mertens and Osimhen did a good job of controlling the ball and turning into space to start the attack in transition. Now, that was something that I was expecting. What I wasn't expecting was to see Koulibaly and Rachmani venturing forward as much as they did. I'm not exactly sure what the thinking was behind that. I guess it was the same as with the forwards dropping. If the center backs shift forward, they might pull Torino's players out of position, or again, they could create a numerical advantage in the midfield. I don't think it worked particularly well, especially Rachmani's runs forward without the ball. When Koulibaly made runs, he did so on the ball. On one occasion, he won a free kick just on the edge of the area, and I saw some reports suggesting that if you look at where Bellotti's left foot made contact with Koulibaly's left foot, the foul actually occurred inside the area. I went back and watched it again, and while I think it was close, I don't think he was in the area. In fact, I think Koulibaly was already falling to ground before the contact, so it may not have been a foul at all. But when I saw these runs, I just couldn't help but think of Koulibaly's interview where he talked about how he learned from Rafa Benitez, and Benitez used to tell him that if he's carrying the ball forward, then something went wrong. The third thing I noticed was that for a couple of minutes in the first half, Mertens and Osman played a lot of dummies, too many dummies. I suspect that was more a matter of circumstance though and not a tactic, because we didn't really see that many dummies for the balance of the match. My second key to the match was that we needed to make the most of our chances because we knew that Torino would commit a lot of fouls to disrupt our rhythm and we knew that they wouldn't give up many chances. Even though we won the match, I'm going to say that we did not achieve this goal. According to the official match report, we created 8 chances to score and we had 11 shot attempts, 6 of which were on target. That's a bit misleading because the majority of those chances were half chances at best. That's where XG comes in handy. According to FB Ref, our expected goals for this match was 1.4, however, that includes the penalty kick. Our NPXG or non-penalty XG was only 0.6. I think that gives you a good idea of the quality of chances or lack thereof that we created. Now the obvious reason why I would say we didn't achieve this goal was because of that missed penalty, so let's touch on that quickly. First of all, we can criticize Insignia for not converting, which I'll get to in a second, but we should also give him credit for his role in the build-up to the penalty. First, he received the ball on the right side of the midfield. That may have been another tactic to counter Torino's man-marking. I thought Insigne roamed a lot more in this match than he typically does. Then he played a gorgeous ball to pick out Osiman in the area. As good as Osiman's control and backheel were, I actually would have liked to see him go for goal with his head in that situation. Now, I thought Mertens made a great veteran play to win the penalty. It was very similar to what he did in the Atalanta match. He knew that he just needed to get a touch on the ball because if the defender committed, he was likely to foul him and that's exactly what happened. Had Insigne converted the penalty, Mertens would have had three goals and an assist in the three matches that Spalletti started him in the number 10 and four goals and two assists in his last six matches altogether. Unfortunately, Insigne did not convert the penalty now. I thought he struck the ball well and Berisha made a fine save. Insigne did get under the ball a little bit which made it easier to save. Had he shot lower, he might have still scored. The problem for me was that Insigne always shoots the same way which gives the keeper an advantage. Berisha said it himself after the match. He said he studied Insigne's penalties and decided to dive to his right because Insigne's last 5 or 6 penalties were all shot to that corner. Now that was Insigne's 4th penalty miss this season but I have to say, He's been very reliable of late. His three prior misses were against Venezia, Fiorentina, and Torino, 
which were all in the first eight matches of the season. And for what it's worth, we won all four of those matches. According to Giuseppe Pastore, the last time a player missed two penalties against two different keepers for the same team was in the 1979-80 season. Paolo Rossi, playing for Perugia, missed against Roma goalkeepers Franco Tancredi and Paolo Conti. Insignia also missed a glorious chance after the penalty. By the way, that play started with Osimen and Mertens dropping deep and linking up. I suspect Insignia was eager to atone for the penalty miss and that's why he elected to shoot rather than to pass to Lozano who was open and had an empty goal staring at him. So Insignia definitely did not take the opportunities that were presented to him. Fortunately, Fabian took his one chance. That was his seventh goal of the season, but as I mentioned earlier, it was his first goal scored from inside the area. According to Corriere dello Sport, his last goal from inside the area was during a 4-1 win over Inter on May 19th, 2019. So he went 1,084 days without scoring from inside the area. That's 12 goals from outside the area in between his last two from inside the area. Now that goal started with Insignia pressing Berisha and Rodriguez. So aside from the penalty miss and that other chance, I do think Insignia had a decent game. Fabian did well to dispossess Pobega, carry into the area and put the ball into the back of the goal. He was somewhat fortunate that Kofi Gigi got a touch on the ball. So taken all together, I don't think we made the most of our opportunities in this match. Our final key to the match was that we needed to keep a clean sheet. Obviously, we achieved this goal. It was our first clean sheet since we beat Venezia 2-0 on February 6th. And though he wasn't particularly busy, I thought Ospina fully deserved the clean sheet. The save he made on Bellotti early in the match was ridiculous. And then he made another good save on Bellotti's free kick late in the match. Actually, I think he made that one look easier than it was because... With Bellotti bending the shot around the outside of the wall, Ospina probably didn't see the ball until very late. This was also the type of match where I was really glad that Ospina was in goal and not Meret, because when an opponent man marks, the keeper can be a very useful player if he's good with his feet. We all know how comfortable Ospina is on the ball and we all know how uncomfortable Meret is. As always, defenders deserve credit for clean sheets as well, not just the keepers. Again, the official match report is not a good gauge of Torino's attack. They apparently had 7 chances and 10 shot attempts, 3 of which were on target, but their XG was only 0.7, and most of that was from the Bellotti chances. So we achieved 2 of our keys to the match and we didn't achieve 1, which I think is consistent with a narrow victory. Now, I don't have a whole lot to add regarding the match itself. Like I said, it felt a bit like a friendly match, though some of Torino's tackles were a little bit dirty to me. But the season is winding down, there are just two games remaining. We're now four points clear of Juventus after they lost to Genoa in dramatic fashion. We own the head-to-head -head advantage over Juve, so all we need is a draw against Genoa to guarantee ourselves third place. We have an outside chance of finishing in second, but we would need Inter to lose both of their remaining matches, and I just don't see that happening. Unfortunately, with Milan's win over Verona on Sunday, we officially cannot win the Scudetto anymore. I think we all knew that since the Empoli match, if not sooner, but I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their heads around what went wrong this season. We've talked about some of those reasons in the past, so I'm not going to dwell on them, I'll just list them off for now. We dropped too many points to mid and bottom table teams, like Empoli, Spezia, and Cagliari. Our home record was one of the worst we've had during the entire De Laurentiis era. Like last season, we had another injury crisis in the middle of the season, including losing our best goal scorer for about two months. That's raised a lot of doubts about the quality of our medical staff and our training staff. 
We hired a manager who never won a Scudetto before and he became far too conservative in key matches. That was likely because he was trying to please his boss, whose number one priority was to finish in the top four, perhaps more so than it was to win the Scudetto. We hardly spent money on the Mercato and therefore we didn't have sufficient depth when we got hit with the injury bug. Now, that's not a reason I cite personally, but it is when I've seen others cite. I suppose you could say that it is related to COVID in the sense that COVID cost the club a lot of money and that limited what we could do on the Mercato. And finally, we have a hugely talented squad, but we don't have any serial winners. Instead, we have the same players who for years lack the mental fortitude required to get us across the line. I'm sure there are other reasons as well, but those are the main ones that I could come up with. Now, when you miss out by such a narrow margin, each of those reasons individually could have made the difference. For instance, if we didn't drop 9 points to Empoli and Spezia, we'd be top of the table. Or if we didn't lose so many games at home, we'd be top of the table. The reality is it's probably everything taken together. But I want to make a quick comment about one of the reasons I listed off, and this is something I posted on Twitter as well. I speak to a lot of different people about Napoli, and there's certainly no shortage of De Laurentiis haters and Spalletti haters, which is totally fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and they have their reasons, some of which I agree with and others which I don't. But I think some of those people, not all, some of those people are a little bit biased because of their dissatisfaction with De Laurentiis and Spalletti and because we haven't won a Scudetto in so long. And of the reasons they cited for why we didn't win the Scudetto and perhaps why we don't have a winning mentality is because our goal from the beginning of the season was to finish in the top four. I personally disagree with that view, and I'll tell you why. First, we finished in fifth place last season and seventh place the season before that. So to me, it's perfectly reasonable for the primary goal to be to return to the Champions League. I think a lot of people disregard how important that is, particularly from a financial standpoint. Ironically, the ADL critics will also say that he didn't spend enough money on the Mercato. Well, unlike some big clubs, we simply cannot spend that much money that we don't have. We certainly don't rack up the levels of debt that those clubs do. Now, a lot of our fans couldn't care less about how much debt we have. They would happily rack up a couple hundred million euros of debt if that meant winning the Scudetto. But the reality is, the owner of the club has to be mindful of that, especially when this is his primary business. He is not an oil tycoon. Now, as I've said numerous times, the goal changed mid-season, so you're more than welcome to use that list to explain why we didn't win the Scudetto once that became the goal, but setting a goal of top four from the beginning of the season is not the reason why. In fact, I could argue that we might have had an even worse season if our goal from the very beginning of the season was to win the Scudetto. We started the season with 10 straight wins when the goal was to finish in the top four. It was only after that, when we realized that we could actually compete for the Scudetto, that we started dropping points. I wouldn't be surprised if we won our final two matches of the season either, for the same reason. Now, I think a lot of people were upset by the comments that both De Laurentiis and Spalletti made to the media about our goal being top four. That I completely understand. I think they could have handled the media a lot better than they did. There was a stark contrast between Merton's comments after the match against Empoli and De Laurentiis' interview with Radio Kiss Kiss. Mertens basically said that this was the most disappointed he's ever been during his time at Napoli, and I think he was being genuine, and that's exactly what the fans wanted to hear. They wanted to know that their players actually care and that this is not just about money for them. De Laurentiis, on the other hand, tried to act like he never failed by saying that he set a goal of top four and that it was the media who created this myth of a Scudetto. 
that's exactly the opposite of what the fans want to hear because it really made it seem like De Laurentiis cares more about the top four than a Scudetto. Personally, I still don't believe that for the very simple reason that you can make even more money winning the Scudetto than just finishing in the top four. I will grant, however, that that could explain Spalletti's conservative approach. They might have worked out that a draw to Inter, for instance, would be safer than risking a loss because we pursued a win too aggressively. As far as Spalletti's comments go, I think he was just being De Laurentiis' puppet, which is probably why De Laurentiis likes him so much. De Laurentiis likes to surround himself with the yes-men, and that's also probably why he didn't like Gattuso. Spalletti's comments after this Torino match were basically De Laurentiis' comments verbatim. For me, though, that doesn't mean either of these guys didn't want to win the Scudetto. To me, these comments were more about saving face, and they backfired. Spalletti spoke quite openly about winning the Scudetto during the season, and so did his players. Given how controlling De Laurentiis is with comments to the media, I think he was probably aware of Spalletti's approach and supported it. So those are my comments on that. It's a very nuanced subject, and I doubt I will change anyone's mind on it. When I posted this on Twitter, a lot of the responses I got were reasons why we didn't win the Scudetto, which kind of missed the point. Again, the point was that setting a goal of top four from the beginning of the season was not the reason why we lost the Scudetto. Not that it's okay or that we shouldn't have been upset that we didn't win it. That will do for part one. In part two, we'll review our latest Primavera match. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our Primavera match against Spal on Saturday. Spal came into this match sitting second from the bottom of the table, having already been relegated. Spal had a decent start to the campaign with four wins, two draws, and only three losses in their first nine matches. However, since then, they have a record of only one win, five draws, and 16 losses. They had six consecutive losses ahead of this match, so it's no surprise that they've already been relegated. Meanwhile, we were in relatively fine form, having beaten Roma, beaten Fiorentina, and come from behind to draw Genoa. We were tied with Torino and Hellas Verona on 40 points and one point clear of Milan. The two teams in the relegation playout zone, Genoa and Lecce, were both three points behind us. That meant that a win in this match would guarantee us salvation, but we'd have to do it without two key players. Koli Sacco was suspended for yellow card accumulation after he was cautioned in the 82nd minute of the Genoa match. Meanwhile, Antonio Cioffi is out for the balance of the season with a torn ligament in his wrist. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Spal lined up in a 4-3-3 with Andrea Rigon in goal. Pietro Sayo and Mark Singer played at centre-back. Matteo Borsoi started at left-back and Marco Forapani started at right-back. Luka Mihai started in the center of the midfield with Luka Sperti to his left and Adam Markiev to his right. Alessandro Orfe played on the left wing, Michael Ellertsen played on the right wing, and Tun Wilke started at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made two changes to the squad that he fielded against Genoa. He lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Huberti Dasiak in goal. Davide Costanzo, Daniel Hisai, and Benedetto Barba played as the back three. Alessandro Spavone started over Sacco in the center of the midfield alongside Gennaro Iaccarino. Davide Acampa played at left wing back and Matteo Marchisano played at right wing back. Normally Giuseppe D'Agostino plays at right wing back but he shifted up to cover for Cioffi. 
D'Agostino and Antonio Vergara played as the two trequartisti. Finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino started at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. The first half was pretty wild. Spal started really well and created chance after chance, but they were also pretty wasteful. Only a few minutes into the match, Borsoi crossed the ball from the left wing. Wilke got a touch on the ball at the edge of the 6-yard box, but he just missed the far post. Spal got another chance a few minutes later from a corner kick. They ran a set piece with Mihai playing the ball short to Sperti at the edge of the area. He passed to Singer in the area, but his shot from about the penalty spot finished over the bar. Then in the ninth minute, Vergara had a nervous moment in our own area and conceded another corner kick. That was a big problem for us in this match. We conceded far too many corner kicks. Mihai crossed the ball into the area. Ellertsen got a touch on the ball at the second post and it fell to Wilke, but he side blocked the shot for yet another corner. Sperti crossed the ball from the opposite side and this time Sayo won the ball, but his header was straight at Idasiak. So Spal missed their share of chances in the opening 10 minutes, but they persisted and opened the scoring in the 11th minute. Orfe burst past Marquisano on the left side of the area before playing a low ball across the face of the goal. Somehow the ball got through a sea of red shirts and found Wilke at the second post for the tap-in. Credit to Napoli though, they scored the equalizer almost immediately after the restart. Ambrosino picked up the ball on the right side of the area and cut it back to D'Agostino near the penalty spot. He struck the ball first time and it took a fortuitous bounce off of Sayo and ended up in the back of the goal. That sequence basically summed up how the first half went. Spal had a plethora of chances and struggled to score, while Napoli took the first opportunity that presented itself. The balance of the first half followed the same pattern. In the 17th minute, Singer came close from a corner, but his header at the first post missed the target. A few minutes later, Wilke went for goal from outside the area, but his low shot missed the target, though it didn't miss by much. Meanwhile, Napoli didn't create any chances until about the midway point of the half, and once again, we scored on the first opportunity that presented itself. This time, Vergara picked up the ball on the right side of the area. He turned to his left to cross the ball. Once again, the ball took a deflection off of Sayo, and once again, it ended up in the back of the goal. This time, the ball popped up and over Rigon before bouncing in at the far post. The goal was given to Vergara, but I wouldn't be surprised if they changed it to an own goal. So midway through the half, Napoli were ahead 2-1 off of two very fortuitous bounces. Whether it was luck or by design, one thing that worked really well for us was attacking the right side of the area. We added a third goal only four minutes after taking the lead, and once again it started from the right side. On this goal, D'Agostino picked up the ball on the right side and fired a shot on target. Rigon made the save, but he parried the ball straight to Vergara at the spot, and he calmly rolled in his second of the match. Now, as was the case throughout the first half, Spal continued to waste their chances. At the half-hour mark, Wilke dispossessed Barba in the middle of the park before playing Ellertsen into the area. He had Wilke open, but Marquisano came over and made an important tackle. Then in the 34th minute, Sayo won a header from yet another corner, but his shot finished just wide of the goal. Then in the next 5 minutes, Spal won two free kicks in dangerous areas, first for a foul by Barba on Markiev, then for a foul by Hisai on Markiev. Both Barba and Hisai were cautioned for those challenges. Sperti took the first free kick and Wilke took the second, and both of them missed the target. But, like with the first goal, Spal persisted and eventually scored a second just before the break. Ellertsen made an excellent run through the middle of the park before testing Idasik with a low shot. Idasik made a good save, but he wasn't able to control the rebound, which fell a few feet in front of him. 
He lunged for the ball, but Wilkie nipped in just before Idase got there, so instead of taking the ball, he took the player and Spal were awarded a penalty kick. That was a bit of an issue for Idasek in the first half. Spal had a chance in between our second and third goals where Markiev made a run in the middle before putting a low shot on target and like on the goal, Idasek made the save but gave up a big rebound. The difference was that on that occasion, a Napoli player was there to clear the danger. So back to the penalty kick, Orfei stepped up to the spot and smashed the ball straight down the middle of the goal. It was actually very similar to the penalty kick that Ambrosino scored in the previous round against Genoa. So Napoli went into the break up 3-2, but in truth, both sides were quite poor in the half, particularly in the defensive phase. Both sides were stretched, so there was space all over the park, which is why Spal had so many chances. I'm sure Frustalupi and Spal's coach Paolo Mandelli picked up on that as well as both clubs seemed to tighten up in the second half. There was definitely less space in the midfield and therefore both sides had fewer chances in the second half than they did in the first. However, I thought Napoli sat back a little too much with only a one goal lead. They invited the pressure from Spal and though we didn't concede too many clear cut chances, we did concede, we did concede corner after corner. That eventually came back to bite us in the 74th minute, Sperti played an in-swinging cross towards the second post. Ellertsen won the header which seemed to be looping towards the top corner but Vergara did really well to head the ball off the line. Unfortunately, his clearance went straight to Sayo just outside the 6 yard box and he volleyed the ball with the instep of his right boot past the lunging defenders and into the back of the goal. You can just imagine how elated the young center back was to score after two of our goals came from shots that deflected off of him. So that made the score 3-3 with about 15 minutes left to play. Curiously, Frustalupi didn't make his first change until the 80th minute when he replaced Spavone with Francesco Gioielli, and he made only two changes in the match. The other change was Antonio Pesce for Marquisano in the dying minutes of the match, but it was Spal's first substitute who made the biggest impact in the 84th minute Diego Simonetti picked up the ball in the middle of the park. He ran straight past Gioielli, then dribbled past Costanzo at the edge of the area before firing a low hard shot into the bottom corner. That put Spal ahead 4-3 after being down 3-1 with only 5 minutes left to play. The Azzurini had one final chance in stoppage time. Vergara played a free kick into the area. Ambrosino had the ball to Gioielli just outside the 6-yard box. He took it down and fired on target but Rigon did really well to push the shot over the bar, so even after Singer was shown a second yellow card in the 87th minute, we were unable to find the equalizer. So with that, the match finished 4-3 in favor of Spal, and this was another missed opportunity for us to secure our own salvation. In fact, we really struggled against the two relegation teams in Spal and Pescara. Between the four matches, our record was one win, one draw, and two losses. Meanwhile, both teams were tied with in the table, Torino and Hellas Verona won their matches, then on Monday Milan scored a late equalizer with 10 men to draw Inter in the derby, so they are now level with us on 40 points. Fortunately, Roma beat Lecce 3-2, Christian Volpato scored a tripletta before getting sent off in that match, and on Sunday Genoa tied Empoli 1-1, so had we held on, even for a draw let alone for a win, we would have guaranteed ourselves salvation with only one match left to play. Now we'll need to get a result against a Hellas Verona team that just thumped Bologna 6-0. That result was both good and bad for us. 
it was bad because we were tied with Verona on 40 points before this round, so they are now three points clear of us. That win guaranteed Hellas Verona will stay up this season, which is good for us because we play them in the final round of the season and they now have nothing left to play for. They can't be relegated, nor can they qualify for the championship playoff. We only need a draw in that match to stay out of the relegation playout, regardless of what happens in the other matches. If we lose to Hellas Verona, then we'll need help from some of the other teams. Milan played Genoa, so there's no real bad result there. If Milan win, Genoa remains below us in the table. If they draw, Milan would move ahead of us by a point, but Genoa would remain below us still. And if Genoa win, Milan would remain tied with us, but we would own the head-to-head -head advantage, so Milan would still be below us in the table. Lecce hosts Torino. The only bad result for us there would be a Lecce win. If Lecce lose or draw, we would remain ahead of them as well, but hopefully we don't lose to Hellas Verona because then none of these other results will matter. So that'll do for part two. In part three, we'll review our latest Feminile match. Welcome to part three of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our latest Feminile match, which was against Empoli on Sunday. Empoli came into this match sitting 7th in the table on 23 points. That was 3 points clear of Pomigliano, 5 points clear of Fiorentina, and 7 points clear of us. That meant that they had already achieved salvation with only 2 matches left to play. We were hoping that that would work in our favor because Empoli have looked like a completely different team in the second half of the season. They had 3 wins, 2 draws, and only 1 loss in their previous 6 matches, and one of those wins was against league champions Juventus. Meanwhile, we were winless in our last five matches with a record of no wins, two draws, and three losses. Now, the two draws were against Milan and Sassuolo, who are both teams in the top four, so those were good results, but we also lost to Lazio, who's one of the two teams that have already been relegated. With Fiorentina playing against Empoli, we needed to get at least a draw in this match to have any chance of staying up, and we'd have to do it without a couple of key players. Evi Popedinova and Depichatsi Nicolau are both out for the season with knee injuries, while goalkeeper Sarabaldi and midfielder Ariana Acuti were both out as well. After the Sassuolo match, it was reported that Baldi had some sort of bruise, which is why Aguirre played in that match. I haven't seen any reports yet about Acuti's condition, so we'll have to see if she returns for the final round. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Empoli lined up in a 4-3-3 with Gloria Ciccioli in goal. Giovanna Maia and Anna Noll played at centre-back. Ex-Napoli player Elisabetta Oliviero started at left-back and Aurora Darita started at right-back. Ludovica Silvioni started in the centre of the midfield with Bianca Bardin to her left and Valeria Monterubiano to her right. Shante Dompig started on the left wing. Sara Tamborini started on the right wing. And Asia Bragonzi started at striker. For Napoli, Domenichetti and Castorina made no changes to the squad they fielded against Sassuolo. They lined up again in their revolving 3-5-2 with Yolanda Aguirre in goal. I say revolving because one of those wingbacks will drop and then the formation becomes a 4-4-2. Paola Di Marino and Lana Golo played at centre-back. Sedia Bramson started at left-back and Emily Garnier started at right-back. Emma Eriko and Sara Tui started together in the centre of the midfield with Claudia Mauri on the left and Kaya Ertsen on the right. And finally, Eleonora Goldoni and Sola James started as the dual strikers. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. 
The first half was a bit of a peculiar one. There was a lot of action at the start of the half. There was a lot of action at the end of the half, but not a whole lot happened in between. Napoli got the first chance only four minutes into the match. Aguirre played a long ball forward, and though Empoli won the first ball, Sole won the second. She had the ball down to Mauri, who tried an audacious volley from outside the area. The shot dipped and bent and ultimately finished just wide of the goal. Empoli responded with a chance of their own only a few minutes later. Oliviero, who I thought was Empoli's best player in the half, crossed the ball into the area. Di Marino intercepted the pass and nearly scored an own goal in the process. Fortunately, the ball hit the upright and stayed out. Empoli fans didn't have to suffer for too long, though. Only three minutes later, Tamborini opened the scoring. Oliviero squared the ball to her in the middle of the park. She took one touch to her left and then unloaded a curling wonder strike with her left that could not have been more accurate. The ball hit the inside of the upright and finished in the top corner of the goal. Aguirre had absolutely no chance to make the save, so Empoli were up 1-0. After that, there was only one chance for either side until the end of the half. Silviano switched the ball to Monteribiano on the right wing. She dribbled past the Bramson to get free at the top of the box, but sliced her shot wide with the outside of her right boot and missed the target. It's also worth noting that at the half-hour mark, Domenichetti and Castorina replaced Kaya Ertzen with Romina Pina. Ertzen seemed to have some sort of physical issue, so we'll have to see if she'll be able to play in the final match of the season as well. Now, neither side looked likely to score in the remainder of the half, and then we had a wild ending to the first half. In the 45th minute, Eriko played a long ball forward, Noel misplayed the clearance, and Sole pounced on the loose ball. She made a fantastic touch to get around Ciccioli, who came out to challenge, and then calmly rolled the ball into the back of the goal to level the score. That was her second goal of the season, and our first goal in five matches. The last time we scored a goal was on March 6th, when we drew Milan 1-1. Then, a minute later, Pina's shot from outside the area took a slight deflection off Maya and finished just wide of the mark. Saratui played an outswinging cross towards the first post. Empoli cleared the ball out, but only so far as Maori at the edge of the area. Her shot was blocked by Maya, but Maori did well to step in front of Derita's clearance to keep the ball in the Empoli area. Goldoni shielded the ball from Noel and then slid for the ball and shot past Ciccioli to put Napoli ahead. That was Goldoni's team-leading fifth goal of the campaign, which is even more impressive considering that Domenichetti and Castorina took her out of the starting 11 for the six matches prior to the Lazio game. So Napoli went into the break up 2-1, and we carried that momentum into the second half. We got our first chance of the second half only five minutes after the restart. Abramson played an in-swinging cross from the left wing, and Sola won the header, but she totally made the save. Then a few minutes later, Mauri dispossessed Derita in the Empoli half. She slipped the ball through to Sola in the area, but her touch was too heavy. Noel came over to clear the danger and effectively shot at her own goal, but she totally made a good reaction save to keep the ball out again. Then the Pina show started. In the 55th minute, she received the throw-in from Abramson and dribbled past Maya and Oliviero before shooting from about 30 yards out. She hit the target, but the shot was straight at Ciccioli, who made the easy save. Pina got another chance five minutes later. Sole picked up the ball in the right wing and dribbled down the line past Noel and Silvioni before crossing the ball to Pina in the area. Pina dribbled past Derita just outside the six-yard box, but Ciccioli was quick off her line to make the save on the shot from close range. With Napoli applying the pressure, you sensed the third goal was coming and that moment arrived in the 72nd minute. Garnier won a throw-in on the right side. I have to say, I was a little bit skeptical about her playing at right back given her size, but I thought she did really well there. Garnier played the throw-in to Sole, who did a fantastic job first to hold the ball up, 
then to dribble past Silvioni, and finally to cross the ball to the first post. Pina got behind Maya and head in her third goal of the campaign to make the score 3-1. This was only the second time this season that we scored three or more goals in a single match. The other time was in our 4-3 victory over Lazio on November 7th. Up until that point, Empoli had only one chance in the half, which was in the 53rd minute. Noel played an in-swinging cross with her right boot from the left wing. Aguirre hesitated to go up for the ball, and that allowed Oliviero to get in front of Abramson. She nudged the ball towards the goal, but Aguirre recovered well and made the save. Now, Empoli had a few big chances after Pina's goal. In fact, one of those chances was immediately after the goal. Two ex-Napoli players combined with Oliviero crossing the ball to the second post. Substitute Izota Noki got to the ball first, but her sliding effort hit the outside of the upright and went out for a goal kick. Then in the 78th minute, Oliviero went for a goal from about 30 yards out, but Aguirre made the save. The ball was dipping, so I don't think that save was as simple as she made it look, and then she jumped on the loose ball as well. Aguirre made what was probably her best save of the match a minute later. Empoli rotated the ball in the left wing before substitute Melissa Bellucci squared to Derita at the edge of the area. She took one touch to control the ball and then fired towards the top corner, but Aguirre got her right hand on the ball and pushed it over the bar. Empoli got one final chance on the ensuing corner kick, with Napoli struggling to clear the danger. Bellucci crossed the ball into the 6-yard box where Maria Awona got a touch on the ball. It popped up in the air for Maya. She headed the ball towards the far corner, but the shot hit the upright and stayed out. That was the final chance for either side in the match, which finished 3-1 in favor of Napoli. Meanwhile, Fiorentina beat Pomigliano 1-0 on an early goal from Daniela Sabatino. That was her league-leading 13th goal of the season. So with only one match left to play, we're still in the third relegation position, but we're now only one point back of Pomigliano and two points back of Fiorentina. We play Pomigliano in the final round, so our fate will be decided in a derby. Pomigliano d'Arco is just outside the city of Napoli, so one of these two Campano clubs are going to be relegated. In theory, we could finish as high as 8th in the table if Fiorentina lose to Empoli in the final round, but that doesn't really matter. If we win, we stay up. If we don't win, we head back down to Serie B. It's just that simple. So that will do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'll be back soon to preview the men's team's penultimate match of the season, which is against Genoa on Sunday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre. Podcast Network.